Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Did you see that, Greg? It was a very pointed reference to Melville's The Confidence Man. No, no, that was a total homage to Lovecraft and his story The Lurking Fear. Did you catch that whole thing with the red glare? Totally. Again and again they come back to the theme of dark, esoteric knowledge. But the essence of that knowledge is Promethean. What is it that the Ted Hughes poem says? Was it anti-self, the hymn-shaped vacuum in unbeing, pulling to empty him? Yeah, no, I see where you're coming from, but the essence of this story seems more rooted in Hittite mythology, you know? Are you guys watching the Kardashians again? Maybe. You know it's just a TV show, right? You're really overthinking it. (laughs) Yeah, right. Only a TV show. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Today on our show, uh, it's funny. Today on the show, the nose looks at pseudo-scholarship on True Detective and the fashion trend called Normcore. And now he's looking very sharp in his mom jeans. Colin McEnroe. That's right. Uh, today on the news, our panelists are Teresa Kramer from The Cut, a magazine, an online magazine, exploring and exploiting the ridiculous of Connecticut, uh, ridiculousness of Connecticut. I just did that from memory. Get is that it correct? right, Colin. Yeah. Is that yeah. basically the right tag? <laughs> yes, now? that's okay. right. Uh, Jim Chapdelaine, who also is exploring and exploiting the ridiculous of Connecticut, ridiculousness of Connecticut, a word I apparently cannot say, uh, but he's also a guitarist extraordinaire, producer, and everything else. Uh, Professor Irene Papoulis from Tr- Trinity College, uh, and you, of course, you are part of the nose. So. Uh, please do uh, tune in and uh, call in if you want to at 860-275-7266. I had intended, I'm off stride already, I had intended to introduce them by their Travolta names. Uh, Teresa would be Theodore Crocker, uh, and Jim would be Jai Kolazan, and the best one, Irene Papoulos, would be Igor Parkinsmack. <laughs> it really is like the best name. I think you really should be. I think Parkinson. I changed your name. Yeah, yeah. I don't think either any of the other ones are really all that sort of reusable. But and if you need to know your Travolta name, this is a very unoriginal thing to be doing. Every show and podcast in America has done this this week, introducing its panelists by their Travolta names. If you need to know yours, you just get on Slate.com. They actually have a John Travolta name generator. And if I have to explain to you why such a thing is even necessary, it will take too long. Uh, and you somebody should, should look up Collins. Yeah, I, don't, I forgot oh, to actually – I'm so selfless and so giving. Someone call in. That I forgot to actually do, uh, generate my own John Travolta name. But it's interesting what, that Yours that could became... be John Travolta. Yeah, actually, yeah. maybe <laughs> – I'm going with that anyway. My name is John Travolta. So uh, in our pre-show deliberations, uh, we decided that – well, Teresa kind of got us started. She sent us down this path uh, towards a True Detective, which is an HBO series. Most people know this by now. It stars Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. It ends up uh, its first season arc on Sunday – um, and what's been going on has been this kind of, as I think I said, pseudo scholarship. This kind, this this desire to mine this show for all kinds of hidden meanings. Uh, and so I'll turn it over to you, Teresa. Maybe you can summarize this better and tell us what it is, uh, how we're going to discuss this. Well, so my, my interest, I love the show, but my interest in it was not about the show so much as the complete and total obsession that has taken over the internet regarding the show. Um, 
And we see the, when we say the internet, not to interrupt, yeah. but when we say the internet, we're not just talking about the comic book men in their pajamas, you know, and stuff no. like that. We're talking about Slate, Atlantic, uh, Daily Beast. I mean, lots of fairly reputable websites with really good journalists mm-hmm. sitting around trying to figure out what this series, which is ostensibly a sort of two cop series about a series about uh, a bunch of murders of women, what is it really about? Well, not only what is it really about, but they are obsessed with solving the crime on a very basic level. But then they're also obsessed with going back and looking at all of these literary references, which I'm almost sure none of them have would have been familiar with before they started researching the show. Right. So this I was hoping Irene had read this somehow. The King in Yellow, which is apparently this very obscure text somewhere that drives people mad. Um literally and figuratively. Well, yeah, probably. I mean, actually, to sort of frame that a little bit better or a little bit more accurate, not mm-hmm. better. Yeah. I would never say anything that <laughs> it's judgmental. Fine. But Robert W. Chambers, who wrote this uh, book more than a century ago, it's called The King in Yellow. It's a collection of stories, and many of the stories, these are kind of supernatural weird tales. Many of the stories refer to a fictional play called The King in Yellow, which you never see. You never see much more than a few words of it, uh, but supposedly it drives anyone who reads it past the first act, completely mad, insane, I tell you. No one can see Which is see exactly what has act, happened right? with this show. Right. Yeah. Right? People yeah. have gone completely insane, So, including when, myself. The reason I brought yeah. this up is because I had spent, like, the night before he asked me to be on the show just reading one article after another after another because I need people to point out the things I've missed in the show because even after watching every episode more than once, I had still missed things, and I needed people to tell me what was happening. Did you go back and read the 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 King and whatever? It, oh no, not, not yet. Yeah. I do. I do think I found a PDF online because I was wondering if it was even still in. It's print. in the public domain, apparently. It is. Yeah, okay. it's in the public domain, so you mm-hmm. should be able to find it quite easily. Yeah. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you, Irene. Irene sort of is uh, the newcomer to the party. Oh, by the way, I have an update. My um, John Travolta name is Carson Muzur. <laughs> oh, that's uh, not bad. Kind of like, actually. Yeah. Um, so uh, one of the things that Irene mentioned as we were kind of emailing around, Igor. sort of feeling out our topics. That's right. Yeah, One thing Igor, Igor. mentioned uh, was that, uh, she, A, she wasn't really watching True Detective, but that in an academic community where 10 years ago, 15 years ago, watching television was not even a cool thing to admit to having done, uh, she increasingly finds, in terms of small talk and cross talk, that everyone's watching this and talking about, you know, arc television. In fact, it, yeah, I mean, it used to be an embarrassing thing to admit to watching a TV show, especially one that was recurring in some way. But now, I was at a dinner party the other night, and everyone sort of, everyone was talking about True Detective, and I felt very left out, have, not having read it, which I think is, an, I mean, seen it. See, I, see right, I said read. See right away. <laughs> That's Ooh. what we do. We read it. Um, except for the one person who said she was just starting with the West Wing, which I thought was kind of funny. Oh, wow. yeah. And then so my three sons to follow. Yeah. Right. That's a more that's a more sort of old school academic, right. you know. Oh, there's this show called The West Wing, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I think it's it's a it sounds like from what I see, and now I've seen two episodes last night. Um, a very good show for English majors uh, at, that uses the same kind of search for illusions, et cetera, mm-hmm. that Teresa just described in an interesting way. But, then, you know, Jim, that sort of raises a question for me, too. I, I feel as though television, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm always the McLuhanist here. Uh, television was initially consumed and for the most part is consumed in a kind of fairly passive, I don't know, 70 percent of mental power mode. You know, and then there are these occasional shows with be it Lost, be it True Detective, be it X-Files, be it Twin Peaks that really uh, require us apparently, to actually pay attention, <laughs> think this about what's going on. This show seems to I- expand those, the parameters of, of who it appeals to. Like, it's not just geek culture. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
I, I myself have abandoned any of these blogs that prognosticate. <laughs> I can inhale this camel He's now. To do his uh, yeah, I can't here. do it. I really can't do it on command. But at home in front of the mirror, I can do it uh, for hours, and that's what I do with my spare time. Uh, I, I've stopped reading these because it was started wrecking it for me. I loved all this stuff initially, but I, but I almost feel with this show like. Remember when you had your first favorite band that no one knew about mm -hmm. and then other people started discovering it and you thought like, oh, they've gone commercial. Mm -hmm. Well, they didn't change at all. It's just the show is the show. And all of a sudden this frenzy started surrounding it. And I was part of the frenzy initially. Uh, I think I endorsed it 27 times on this show. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, and now I find that it's distracting for me to read all the – the uh, um, critiquing of it and especially the attempts to solve it because I don't want to be led down some path. I, I want to be surprised well, are you as much trying, as I can. But you're trying to, uh, are you obsessively trying to solve no, it yourself? No, I'm not. I'm, I'm obsessively enjoying the show, the acting and the, the writing and, the, and, and trying not to uh, over-predict and over-react to stuff. I'm just sort of, in fact, I went back and, and watched it last night and my wife stopped it in the middle and said, you know, and she wasn't aware of all this storm. Uh, it's hard to be aware of that stuff when you're a preschool teacher. Right. Um, <laughs> she has a different storm to deal with. And, and she stopped and said, you know, I'm not sure about this show, how it treats women. And then and so I referred her to the Willa Paskin and the other uh, Emily articles. Nussbaum in The New Yorker. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Did, did sort of and, I, was about and, and my argument was that it. it's really not uh, – th there's no good people in this. Mm -hmm. there's, whether they're women or they're – there's just no one safe in this show. Uh, but but I don't think she was satisfied with that. But By the way, we, 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 welcome, we welcome your contributions, your interpretations, uh, your rejections of scholarly analysis of, a, of an HBO uh, series, uh, your feelings that this is just another male gaze toxic case of torture porn. <laughs> uh, whatever it is that you want to say about this, 860-275-7266. That's 860-275-7266. You know, Teresa Gramer, I'm sort of surprised to find you on the end of the continuum that you're on, that you're, you really are sort of welcoming all this symbolic interpretation and immersing yourself in it. I mean, I often see you as the person who's going to go, who, who would say, hey, it's just a TV show. Yeah. Just watch <laughs> it. Shut up. Well, uh, we don't want to hear your you know your your masters in English recited to us over this. Uh, I I do sort of feel that way, in terms of like uh, Jim pointed us toward was it what was the what, the article you sent the doubter article the doubter, the doubter? Yeah, the doubter. that was yeah. from the New Republic actually right so that was a, a sort of in mm -hmm. defense of of the show uh, an attempt to rebuff all these attacks but it's it. more it's not so much the uh, the sort of literary illusions that I'm kind of getting into. It's th there are little repeating things throughout the throughout the show that I miss because I have a tendency to do other things while watching TV. And mm. so then I read an article the next day on Slate or something and it says, oh, did you see that scene where the little girls are playing with the dolls and there's five men surrounding them and it's basically a little rape scene that's happening with the girls' dolls. And I'm like, no, I didn't see that. And I have to go watch and watch that episode again. And that kept happening to me. So I had – I kept – I kept going back to the articles about it to find out what I had missed. 
But in doing so, I then end up with the Carcosa and the Yellow King and all, all these other sort of mythological things going on in there. sound like an English major to me. I <laughs> was an English major. Right? <laughs> yeah. and, well, and this show is the, the work of a professor. Uh, the guy, the showrunner, is both a novelist and I think he is a professor of English uh, somewhere. What were you going to say? I, I was going to say that I one thing I've seen in the criticisms that I've read um, is that you know, oh, it's just a freshman. It's like a guy in a freshman door. You know, the the sort of um, philosophical uh, analysis that um, what's his name, Matthew McConaughey character mm-hmm. has is like you know, freshman dorm in the middle of the night, freshman dorm philosophy. And I just I think that's that's such an unfair criticism in the mm-hmm. sense that you know, yes, people first often discover philosophy in the f- in their freshman dorm, but that doesn't mean they've s- you know that they've then gone on to solve the meaning of life, so they don't have to worry about those things. You know, I think we all have. So it's an ongoing we, pursuit. Yeah, and we yeah. all have an interest. I hope I like it when we have an interest in figuring, trying to figure things out. How does life really work? What are the mysteries of life? And yeah, people talk about them in freshman dorms, but we, why can't we keep talking about them? Well, that's you sort know? of what fascinated me about this was. It, was that people were that interested in it to go back and start learning about things like these books and all, it, because this is America and people do not necessarily like to read books. And when they do, it is of the sort of uh, Nicholas Sparks variety in which they don't have to think too much about it. And so when a TV show comes along, that forces them to then go back and start learning about all these things. I, I'm just fascinated as what do what makes think, them actually do that? Yeah, do you think it's the people who wouldn't read a book, maybe, who are doing this? Like, they're they're sort of using this show as their as an outlet for that desire I, for I reflection? Don't. I think it's some pretty literate people that are weighing mm-hmm. in. I mean, didn't you have Willa Paskin uh, talking about it? Mm-hmm. She was, but she gets paid to watch television. So yeah, right, she right, right, right. Well, yeah, but I, I think the point you're making is a really good one, the question that you're making. And I, I also, I'd love to hear uh, somebody from out there from the outside world chime in on this one at 860-275-7266. 860-275. 757266. And that is the shifting place of television in our quote unquote intellectual landscape. I mean, you know, starting around the time of the Sopranos, I think it became fashionable and kind of true to say that in terms of narrative and character development, television was a little bit more where it's at than movies were. That, you know, movies were for a long time exalted as a much more superior. Uh, as a superior form of art, uh, and 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 a form of art which television was typically not regarded as being, uh, it was regarded as being a vast wasteland. Uh, suddenly, you know, HBO because of The Sopranos and and Six Feet Under and some of the series that came along after that, and then other series on other networks that began to imitate that, you started to you know hear television talked about. Uh, in a much more serious way, uh, and, and a lot of critics, even film critics, were saying, well, "You know, really, the action is over on television these days. It's it's not so much in movies anymore." N- now, you know, Irene steered us to this uh, conversation from the New York Times Sunday Book Review a few weeks ago, and a couple, of, which a couple of writers were saying, "Well, is television can it be as good as literature? Can you know, is it? I don't know. Are we asking too much of television?" <laughs> you know, before you even get there, this whole thing was predicted by. Michael Keaton, I think about 30 years ago when he was a comedian and not an actor. And I I remember him coming out and saying uh, how he was reading lately and and the thing he was reading was Bazooka Joe comics. (laughs) And so he proceeded to read a Bazooka Joe comic. And so Joe says to Skeezix, do you see time the way Kierkegaard sees it in a linear way unfolding forever like Taffy? Or do you see it as Sartre – does as a drop of oil on a blotter spreading out to infinity. 
And that was his Bazooka Joe comic that day. So he predicted all this stuff a long time ago. So that's – it also folds Bazooka Joe comics into literature. Actually, we're doing a show next week on origami, which we will fold Bazooka Joe comics <laughs> into literature. You could also fold Pap's Blue Ribbon beer cans into Oh, that's people. right, which is something that, that Matthew really? McConaughey – Well, yeah. Matthew McConaughey does that. <laughs> oh you haven't gotten that far oh, yet. Yeah, Matthew McConaughey oh, – really? Get ready. He, he has. Wow. Matthew McConaughey uh, exhibits so many disturbing habits uh, in this <laughs> yeah. movie that we would be here all day just yeah. trying to name them all for you. But one of them is while he's being interviewed by these two uh, policemen. Uh, he begins sort of ripping these beer canes apart with a knife, I with believe. A, yeah, and just and he makes little people out of yeah. them. So. And the other disturbing thing about it was his uh, Oscar acceptance speech sort of set me back a little bit. Uh, I chose to watch the Oscars over True Detective, and that was a irreversible mistake—a <laughs> thing that I could not unsee. Uh, his his uh, acceptance speech was the most bizarre thing, and so well rehearsed and scripted. Well, I think, it, I think McConaughey, despite his previous, you know, public persona, was always kind of a half lunatic. I mean, he yeah, he's known so. for basically yeah. smoking pot and playing the bongos while naked. Naked, right? Yeah. 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 So, like, this was the character he was born to play as far yeah. as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah, you're like, right. The guy, yeah. this, like, crazy drunk who just rambles at you yeah. incessantly for hours. It'd be one thing if he did it while he was dressed, yeah. but <laughs> the naked part. Uh, Rick is tweeting to us, True Detective's filmic cinematography and editing silently contributed to its allure, more like Blue Velvet, not Twin Peaks, to pick two different David Lynch products. Uh, Let me grab a a call also. Some people are calling in here for some reason or another. The mouse doesn't work. There we go. Uh, Picking up a call here from Dan in Naugatuck. Hi, Dan. Hey, everyone. How's it going? Just fine. Um, I was just calling because I'm obviously a big fan of the show and where it's been going so far, but I was wondering if I can get your opinion on – there's been so much buildup of the mythology and so much uh, people investigating this Yellow King and Carcosa. Do you think with only one episode remaining that it can live up to the build that it's been going on and that it can have a fulfilling end? Or do you think it's can it really reach the heights that it's been going to is my question. I, I asked my significant other that exact question, you know, seconds after the credits rolled last Sunday night. Or I guess it's a really good question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, they, they, for those of you who haven't watched uh, this show, first of all, I, I apologize that we're talking so long about it. But, you know, there really has been this incredible buildup of, uh, of, of suggestions of symbols and hidden messages and mythos. And, but there hasn't really been any explanation of anything. It's just this constant tantalizing drumbeat that there's this unseen world world of meaning that you're going to be clued into at some point. And with an hour left to hand us the Rosetta Stone for this, you do kind of wonder Uh-oh. whether they can do this. Sounds like the answer might be no. Well, <laughs> also, the, all that mythology is is attached to this deranged murder cult. So to, to ask it to make sense, I don't think it will make sense in any real way. It's just going to be a whole bunch of crazy stuff that... Unless you're a member of a deranged murder. <laughs> yes, unless... Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the problem with those long, extended shows. You know, too, it seems like, as opposed to a movie that's over in two and a half hours or two hours, and they, and they, and they can wrap it up. In a, in a long, extended show, they just build and build and build and build and build the anticipation, and then most of the time, it seems like people are disappointed by well, what... Well, that is lost to a T. Yeah, well, right. yeah. lost right. to a T yeah. and Battlestar Galactica to a T. Mm-hmm. And, and, but, I mean... Those things took place. It took four or five years to disappoint us. This people will talk about this ending, regardless of what it is. They'll be talking about it for a long time, and and I wonder 
what does the next season hold? It's different characters, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. They hand the baton to these other detectives. They could always um, make it go into the next season, right? No, they can't. Well, they they, can't. Can't. they, sort of, they have promised not to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they had the whole vision from the beginning for yes. eight episodes. So, yes. so maybe, maybe yeah, so it'll be. You know, yeah, it was written by one guy well. instead of a room of writers. It right. was written by Nick Pizzolatto just by himself in a room somewhere rather than a whole bunch of, you know, uh, yeah. A rotating right, right. room a of writers, of like writers. at Lost or yeah. whatever. I did love the way they brought present time into this thing, where they where they brought us into now. Yeah, the, mm-hmm. the, the show kind of exists in three different time periods and switches around among them uh, pretty rapidly. But let me just grab a, a we got a, some interesting calls uh, coming in here. Here's Patricia in Wakefield. I don't know where Wakefield is, but but I believe that you're there. It's near Boston. Hi. Hi. Hi, Wakefield, Rhode Island. Oh, Wakefield, Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. Okay. Bardellan, yes. Um, I just called him to say I have a 31-year-old son um, who's an intelligent kid, kid, well, <laughs> and gets together pretty much on a weekly basis since this show has started, almost like women would do with a book discussion group. And it's fantastic to watch oh, these because I own a bar, a restaurant, and it's fun, funny to watch you guys all come in, and they sit around for like an hour discussing every little minute detail of the show and what it means. And I also think that they're really drawn towards both characters, that they have this really male relationship, that they're not... um, Yes, there is some sex in the show, obviously, but it's... They're not distracted by that. They really are latching on to, like, the relationship between these two men. And I think it's just fascinating that these kids are getting together... Almost in the literary sense, and watching the show. Um, so he's a, this is a 31-year-old guy who uh, gets together with a group of people to watch True Detective, and his mother owns a bar. Teresa, you should be well, dating this guy. <laughs> sometimes get together the night after, whatever it is. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it is really fun to watch these kids who, you know, I've known since, you know, they're all eight, eight years old or so. Some of them barely getting through high school, some of them college graduates, but just having an awful good time. And really giving, you know, really thinking about the show and, and insights into it. And, right, trying to figure out the mythology and the language. It's, I think it's fascinating. Yeah, thanks for your call, Patricia. And remember, it's not sex. It's HBO. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny she brings up the relationship between the two guys because while I was watching the show, um, Gina Berecker, my old English professor, came to mind because she— Former English professor. For, yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I'm not calling you old. Um, she would say— um, that the relationship in a love triangle that's most interesting is the is the relationship between, you know, the two men or the two women, whoever whoever are fighting for the uh, attentions of one person. And I kept thinking about that. I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but there's some things happen later on. Yeah. And um, some things that would legitimately make, make this sort of a love, love triangle. triangle. Yeah. yeah. And so I kept thinking about that in terms of Marty and Rust. Mm-hmm. What to bring back more? I've, as I've said, as I've said to Jim references. repeatedly, never mow my lawn. Yeah, <laughs> never, mow never, my lawn. ever. This I is like also the kind of series that produces catchphrases. Yeah. Let me just grab one mm-hmm. more call here. Here's uh, Charles in Stanford. Hi, Charles. How are you, Colin? Just fine. Uh, a huge fan of your show. Listen every day at one. Take my lunch break just to listen. So. Oh gosh, thank you. Uh, of course, of course. Um, so what I was uh, talking about before was uh, Nick Pizzolatto, the creator of the show, uh, who's uh, you know a novelist also. Uh, and Carrie Fukunga, who's the director, uh, who also did the movie Sinombre, uh, they both were talking about how they actually wanted to make the landscape the main character of the show, and both, you know, Russ and Marty are kind of supporting characters to the landscape. And 
the way that I was trying to connect that to, to what you're talking about as far as literature becoming TV or TV becoming literature, uh, you can't really go on for 20 pages describing a scenescape in a book, whereas you can take, you know, the bayou and do a long three-minute drawn-out shot and everybody's satisfied with what's going on. And it's, it's, uh, it's, the show's just blowing my mind in the first place. But the fact that the, uh, they went so far out of the way to try to kind of create a, uh, literary scenescape for the show it's it's just it's just phenomenal um eric in a similar vein uh, charles eric tweets to us maybe tv is where it's at right now but the proof oh excuse me i got the wrong one where, where, where did that go yeah maybe tv is where where it's at right now the tr- proof is always uh, in how cinematic tv has become hashtag six minute tracking shot <laughs> <laughs> um, that's the shot everybody talks about, of course. Yeah, that, that, that exactly, opens the series. Exactly. Charles sounds like he'd be a good member of the uh, of the nose. Um, all right, so we're kind of wrapping this up here. We, uh, we've been talking uh, about True Detective. We could maybe squeeze another call or a tweet or something like that. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. He's kind of right about what were you going to say? Well, I was just going to stick up for um, passages of description of landscape <laughs> in novels. I you knew know. you were going to do that. Yeah, because you can still make an, uh, a landscape a place. My mind is blank at the moment to try to think of somebody who does that beautifully. But I, I you know, I think it's, it, you know, it, it's something that novelists do. And it's interesting to think about our patience with uh, reading about the landscape in, a, in 20 pages versus our patience with the three-minute. You know, it's interesting that equivalent that um, the caller made between 20 pages and three minutes. You know, mm-hmm. three minutes is more, it, you know, we can take it for three minutes even though it seems really long, but not tw- 20 pages, you know. So, uh, and I think that, that, so you could argue that that's the beginning of an argument, that there is a real difference between watching a television or a movie, a really, uh, even a nicely done movie, versus a novel. You know, they, they, they involve different parts of our minds. And they probably are really, not only are they really different, but it, this is the first time you might argue that they're sort of equal. That there, that that television has has this new form, these, this big sweeping arc to work with that movies really don't have, unless you're doing a trilogy that spans seven years, and and that uh, that they can encompass a whole a whole lot more stuff than they normally would. Okay, so equal but different forms. I guess I, yeah. I would go with you there that yeah. they're equal in terms of their capacity to to be great art, but they're just different. The, oh, land, yeah, the yeah. landscape yeah. argument, I just, I'll just do a quick story about this. So before there were movies of Lord of the Rings, uh, my son was very young. Uh, and, That's a good uh, example. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, well, I think it's a good example of maybe the opposite. Yeah, but anyway. Okay. Well, I, yeah, anyway. Too much description. Yeah, my son, my son and I, and uh, I think we had another kid. We had another kid with us, one of his friends, and they were pretty young, and we were hiking in the White Mountains, and my determination was to get us sort of you know, up above the Aspen line or whatever they call it, 4,000 feet or so up. Uh, but they were getting bored and tired the way kids do. So I started to, to the best of my recollection, tell them the story of the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> so, I mean, this is like this Scheherazade-like effort, you know. If I lost their attention, they were going to announce they were tired and sit down and the whole thing was going to be over. So I had to tell it as best I could. So and to the best of my recollection, and my, my then wife was with us, and afterwards she said, that was really amazing <laughs> how much of that book you actually remember. And and so I, I told told them the story. And then, you know, I don't know, six months later – you know, helping my son get to bed. I said, well, maybe we'll start reading the book. And so I started reading the book out loud to him. It has the longest damn descriptions <laughs> of so a landscape long. that does not even exist anywhere yeah. anyway. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I, I just find myself going, let's skip over this part. Okay. Uh, let's skip yeah. over this part too. Okay. Yeah. Let's skip over this part. Yeah. I mean, the actual things that, you know, yeah. that, that are, are cinematic in this book are fewer and farer between than I realized. 
Anybody? Okay, we'll take. We're going to take a quick break here. I'll have the last word for once on the nose, and we'll come back. We're going to talk about a fashion called Normcore when we come back. Stuff. All right, so we're back. I wish you could hear the conversations we have before, during, and after the show during the breaks. They're just as good as the show, uh, and sometimes better. Uh, all right, so uh, one of the other things that kind of made the rounds this week was a term, a new word. It was called normcore. It so completely sums me up that people did send me the first story about it, which ran in New York Magazine, although it did not originate. The idea, the word, didn't start with New York Magazine. But uh, a writer there wrote, sometime last summer, I realized that from behind I could no longer tell if my fellow Soho pedestrians were art kids or middle-aged middle American tourists. Clad in stonewashed jeans, fleece, and comfortable sneakers, both types looked like they might have just stepped off an R train after shopping in Times Square. When I texted my friend Brad, an artist whose summer uniform consisted of Adidas barefoot trainers, mesh shorts, and plain cotton tees for his take on the latest urban camouflage, I got an immediate reply. LOL, Normcore. Uh, Normcore, it was funny, but also effectively captured the self-aware, stylized blandness I'd been noticing. Uh, Brad's source for the term was a trend forecasting collective and fellow artist group called K-Hole. And anyway, we can go on to explain this a little bit more, but the kind of, you know, it's the, the idea, anyway, is that there is a fashion trend now that consists of dressing, at least in New York, like a char- like one of the characters on Seinfeld or like me. <laughs> <laughs> you have – you've started something. I don't think I've know? started These something. These people yeah. have pictures of you up on their walls. Right, yeah, right. <laughs> Um, You're an icon, a fashion <laughs> yeah. icon for them. What did you make of all this? I, What's your I, take? I don't even – the minute you attach the word core to anything beyond marine or apple <laughs> or uh, or some <laughs> obscure music genre like emo or grind, mm. it's almost sort of a death sentence for that movement. Um, it's, a, it's a way of sort of uh, cowling around a certain fashion and – if that fashion is anti-fashion, I mean, aren't, these are probably the same guys who who have boots that are handcrafted uh, from the 1870s uh, original diagrams and drink artisanal whiskey. And uh, I, I don't know. How do you let that go and trade that in for uh, the gap? Well, one of the coiners of the term says normcore is a desire to be blank. Uh, fundamentally, the way that we thought about it at K-Hole is that people used to be born into communities and were sort of thrust into the world and had to find their own individuality. And I think today people are born individuals and are trying to find their communities. So the desire is to blend in. Who wants to go next? But they're not blending in. I find this thing so insulting and annoying. <laughs> Here we like, go. I'm so glad yeah, you do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, if you're spending two hours in a thrift shop trying to find the perfect normcore jeans, you are, you're not being anti-fashion. You're being annoying. Like, I, it just bothers me so, so much. But doesn't fashion require that you go out and invest in this well, ex- movement, right? It, well, right, exactly. Like, you have to be, aggr- I mean, you're being aggressively bad, sort of. Like, you're going out of 
your way to dress a certain way. Therefore, you're making a statement. And does it extend to Pat Boone records? I mean, are they surrounding their entire lives with blandness? Is it better to then make – but would you say, Teresa, that it's Mm. better to go to a thrift shop and design an outfit that expresses your individuality? I mean, is well, how yes, is because that at least, but, well, at least then you're being honest, like because part honest. of the well, part of this is them saying we're being anti-fashion, right? Because fashion has become too much about making a statement for yourself. Well, you're still making a statement. You're not not making a statement here. Uh, yeah. So, if you were really interested in not making a statement, you would just go to the Gap and buy a sweater and some jeans, and you would actually look like everyone else. Where they're <laughs> trying to look like. Someone put it, dads from the 90s. You know, it's that they're not finding the latest <laughs> pair of easily fitting jeans. They're fi- they're finding a pair of someone's old jeans and pairing it with something weird and, you know, pretending so another, like, yeah. As a dad from the 90s, boy, trend. do I have some, some clothes I could sell now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> why? Yeah, it's hard to imagine why anyone would. Th- I mean, don't people like to look good? <laughs> Especially in New York. You know? Well, yeah, I have but a that, that, that's become looking good, right? I, I, so that so becomes the, looking good once you it's decide. the new, the new tr- meme, the fashion meme or trope, and it is look at look at man, that guy is so bland. Wow. <laughs> I, I have a couple of thoughts about this, but I'd like to begin by seeing how many things I can pin on Teresa all at once, yeah. including the fact that she so completely understands this idea that she's able to even reel off an example and use it in a sentence. That whole idea about spending time in a thrift shop looking for normcore yeah. jeans, um, and also that you are the person who introduced to the WNPR audience Macklemore. I think you. Yeah, were I was just going to say this is his fault. This and so it's, <laughs> this is it's therefore his your fault. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> At least at the level of Connecticut Public Broadcasting, yeah. it's your fault. Yeah, thanks, Norm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the other thing about Normcore is, like, I actually don't think that I am Normcore or that I dress Normcore because I think really what we're talking about, and if you, I, this is not an original idea with me. Other people have made this point. But if you look at the New York Magazine article or a lot of the articles that have followed, the examples, the slideshows they show are young and beautiful people dressed like me. Uh, and, and so young and beautiful people <laughs> People tend to look really good no matter what they wear. Um, So this is more of a statement. uh, I think, you know, if you're a 24-year-old, very attractive Brooklyn hipster, and instead of wearing whatever, you know, dumb hat you were wearing last year and you're you're dressing this way, I mean, it's a little different. It isn't really embracing. So is there a combination in Normcore? Do you still – can you have gauged ears – and be normcore, like, do you, or do you take those out and ask me, ask her? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't want to talk to these people. I don't know what. <laughs> I don't know what they've got going on. I think there's something about um, that I see in my students too about um, the whole idea of wanting to blend in. I mean, you, you said Teresa, people are born individual, and they're maybe that's true, but I think I, I don't know. I just find that sometimes, uh, that like millennials, if we could generalize about them. Um, want, you know, feel an anxiety about being different and mm-hmm. expressing themselves and looking into the uniqueness of themselves. You know, it makes them feel uncomfortable in relation to the group. And that has seems to happen. That comes up a lot in class. I teach personal writing, and a lot of times I feel like people people say to me, "Well, I don't want to offend anyone, or I don't want to, I don't want to seem weird, or I don't want to." You know, it sort of it can amount to I don't want to stick out. You mm-hmm. know, so that's the, that side of it makes me feel uncomfortable just because I, you know, why not stick out? I believe, you know, I'm so much a baby boomer in the sense that I want people to, you know, express their individuality. And people go to Brooklyn to stick out. Mm-hmm. 
right? They, they well, go there to be part some, of a certain culture, I would say, uh, 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 to, you know, well, show the roads in the, a certain way. Part of what came to I was thinking about this because I used to be really annoyed by the whole hipster aesthetic as well because it was basically taking sort of a working class wardrobe and tailoring it to themselves. You know, it was jeans and beards and uh, flannel shirts only. They don't, you know, they're not lumberjacks. They're they don't have jobs, and they <laughs> and they live in a in you a warehouse are, in Brooklyn. You, you, know? have, you yeah. are so get off of my lawn right now. <laughs> I know. She wants to I'm date the thirty. She wants to date the thirty-one year old guy whose mother owns a bar. Yeah. Um, uh. You know, I, I mean, I, I do sort of wonder if if it is more about more than fashion. I, I'm not. If it is, I mean, fashion is always about more than fashion, right? I, I don't. Always, I'm not always especially good at decoding what else it's about. Um, but I'm, uh, Betsy is is tweeting to me or messaging me right now that it's about what Irene said about attitude and self-esteem. To me also, it's um, a rejection not only of individuality, although I think your analysis is spot on. I, th- I think you're right, and I don't teach as many millennials as you do, but when I do teach them, I, I think you're right that they are a little bit more interested in blending in, a little less in, uh, interested in calling attention to themselves as different anyway, as being different people. I mean, maybe they'll get over that. Uh, the... Um, but I think also there's some there's something about comfort that's in here. You know, the sort of notion of being comfort comfortable rather than being stressed out. In skinny jeans. Yeah, in, in skinny jeans. <laughs> and, and this was, of course, directed uh, this week. She didn't use the term normcore because she wouldn't know uh, to do it yet. But the former governor of Alaska and former uh, running mate of John McCain, Sarah Palin. And fashion uh, icon. Fashion icon uh, suggested uh, – Gawker.com kind of interpreted this as meaning that she was saying that President Obama is too normcore to be a world leader. Her uh, actual statement was, look – the perception of Obama, of him and his potency across the world, is one of such weakness. People are looking at Putin as one who wrestles bears and drills for oil. They look at our president as one who wears mom jeans and equivocates and bloviates. Um, and, and this was accompanied in Gawker by a picture of President Obama in stonewashed jeans and kind of sports sandals and a kind of loose white shirt running to a black SUV going God knows where. Um, to bloviate somewhere. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, I guess that sort of goes back to your point. I mean, if you dress – like I- Irene uh, or Igor or whatever her name is, <laughs> has a has – you have a style. You have a look, right? You know? I, I, some, I like to think so sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you have yeah. – I'm yeah. not going to try to describe – uh, how you're dressed today, because men never do a very good job at the, of that. But you're dressed in a certain way, and it's the way that you dress, and 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 it probably contains a lot of statements that you want to make about yourself. Um, uh, yeah, at least under indirectly, yeah. But I, I also have to put in a word for mom jeans as a term, and how <laughs> all the moms. <laughs> It just ruined it for so for so many of us moms, you know. Just the humiliation of the concept of mom jeans. You know? But it's usually applied to a man. Yes, seven that, years. That, that <laughs> phrase is usually applied to a man, isn't it? Like Mitt Romney was wearing. Mom well, as a as a as a deep insult, it's right, applied right. to a I man, right? That. Yeah, yeah. A mild like, insult is right. applied to women. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Uh, so, but but wouldn't the 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 other side of that be sort of dockers or uh, is there dad, dad jeans? jeans? Yeah, are there? No one says dad no, jeans. No right? one. No one tries to humiliate people by saying they're wearing dad jeans. Oh, no. Or I mean, maybe yeah. some people. Do. Well, we could start today. Yeah. And anyway, I think one of the suggestions that these these trend spotters are making about normcore is that it isn't a specific look. Like in New York, that's what the look is. You know, maybe stonewashed jeans and white sneakers and a zip up hoodie and. 
uh, something like that. Uh, kind of, a, but the whole idea is blending in, right? The, so that if you if you're in LA, normcore is something else. I'd love to hear like from an actual normcorer. Yeah. Somebody in the North <laughs> Corps who signed up for a couple of years. Can I get a big amen from a Norm Corps? Uh, 860-275-7266. We're running out of time in this um, section, but I wanted to just quickly touch upon um, a, uh, a development not unrelated to fashion anyway. <laughs> anyway, um, so we had another crisis this week, and that was the crisis of upskirting. Another term – did you know the term – I'm looking over at you because mm-hmm. you seem to be uh, about five weeks ahead of the rest of us. So um, – <laughs> Have you ever heard the term upskirting? Oh, yeah, this yeah, week? yeah, yeah. It's something I've worried about. Well, it's why I don't wear skirts in cities. Well, or, you wear the, mom jeans. or the Apple store yeah. in yeah. Manhattan. Do not ever walk on their staircase in a skirt because it is basically glass and spiral and people can stand under it. So, yes, I have definitely heard This of is that. actually a category on porn sites. Upskirting? Mm-hmm. Upskirting, yes, it's and it's been that way for well, twenty so years. Well, so is it a is it an action or is it just it's when the when co- the air it's a, does it's it? A covert, um, oh, it's a covert. It's a covert picture of uh, of a woman. So what happened yeah. this week, just to bring you up to speed on this, was that a um, man was tried in Massachusetts uh, for the 2010, I think, offense of upskirting on public transportation. He was on public tra- – I don't know how you do this on public transportation <laughs> and not get immediately either arrested or punched out or something. Mm-hmm. But he apparently was using his cell phone to snap pictures uh, of people's skirts. In <laughs> um, that, uh, ultimately, the Supreme Court uh, – it all turned on a subtle interpretation of the law, which if I understand it correctly – and I've got notes here if I need them, but uh, sort of said that since you can't know what's under somebody's skirt, you can't be committing the sort of the offense that was defined by the letter of the state's peeping Tom law because you don't really know what you're taking a picture of. I think I have that correctly. I, I can – when you're discussing it anyway, I can, I can go to So was he convicted it. or not convicted? He, he was um, – quit- Upskirting was legalized basically. He was, yeah. he was <laughs> really? for, for like an hour. Mm-hmm. Because uh, that's the other amazing story mm-hmm. about this. I mean, think about how long it takes to get any kind of change through any kind of legislature. Think how, about how glacial they right. are. Sure. Uh, so yesterday, uh, yesterday, in a just you know uh, a matter of minutes, I think the um, the Massachusetts legislature fixed this loophole. It's almost literally a loophole in the law, and it was signed into law by Governor Patrick either last night or this morning or something like that. Uh, you you cannot upskirt with impunity anymore. Child hunger wow. continues to be a problem, <laughs> poverty, things like that. And, uh, nothing yeah, else yeah. really got fixed this week. This is wow, easy to fix. They, boy, they, 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 they acted on. on that very quickly. Yeah. So that's sort of, uh, in a way, maybe they're trying to balance the mom jeans meme in somehow <laughs> and, and offer some level of protection. It's amazing that he was able to get away with this. Yeah, that was a good lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you could shoot somebody in Florida, I mean, it's pretty minor, I guess, mm-hmm. if you can do this. But but it, it is amazing what people can get away with if they can afford a lawyer. All right. We have to stop there. Uh, but uh, do not upskirt. All right. That's what we, we say. I, the, the status of the Connecticut law has not been explored. We'll, we'll have a reporter look into that immediately. But just assume anyway that it's illegal. And even if it isn't, it's, it's bad. It's bad. <laughs> Leather jackets on the boards Denim with a worn-out place on the pocket
on the Abbey Road cover, Paul is wearing sandals, but George is totally normcore. That means Ringo is the Yellow King. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our intern is Jay Nashley, who totally dated one of the Beatles and was Laura Palmer's best friend and assisted in the fugitive Kate Austin Actually, I Didn't Watch Lost. Greg Hill and Patrick Scahill appeared in our intro, and Greg tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Matthew Fox. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff entering the secret cave of the locally sourced cronut, visit our great website, WNPR.org. On Monday, are men really better than women at Jeopardy? And other pressing questions. And now... Back to the nose. Actually, I wrote that uh, script from home, and I'm now looking through the window, and I believe our intern today is Skylar Magnoli, whose Travolta name is Samir Mosolin, by the way. Uh, so if you call the show, please address her as Samir Mosolin. Uh, but don't call the show because we're doing endorsements right now. Um, so it's time for the panel to endorse things that they know about that you might enjoy knowing about. Should I go to you last because your endorsement no, is no, so no, tepid? No, 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 I, I, I got it. I got right. it, yeah. Um, I was going to give you some time to work up some enthusiasm for what you're endorsing. No, no, no. I really enjoy what I'm going to endorse. I just had to remember it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so on the true detective psychopath slash conspiracy theory theme, um, I want to endorse an episode of Mark Maron's WTF podcast in which he interviews John Ronson, and they talk about um, his book about psychopaths and his book about conspiracy theorists and sort of right-wing nuts. And... Um, it's it's hilarious and informative, and I learned all sorts of conspiracy theories I didn't know about already, and it, it's very, very funny. I am going to listen mm-hmm. to that today, actually. Mm-hmm. I will, too. Uh, available on mm-hmm. Stitcher and other uh, podcasting platforms, mm-hmm. as is the show, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim Chapdelaine. Um I have a couple of things to endorse. Um, I recently, I'm late to the party on both, both of these things. Uh, the band Deer Tick, uh, we recorded the other night, and they sort of blew me away with their emotional authenticity. They were at Infinity Hall and will they be were, part of our live uh, at Infinity yeah. series. Right? As was this guy, Brett Denon, who is a very peculiar sort of uh, Laurel Canyon, okay. California guy. Well, I really liked him. Somebody else was telling me about him. I've heard about him. Yeah. About him yeah. uh, and I will be rushing home to be mixing Brett uh, within seconds. Uh, also, I wanted to give a shout-out to uh, the book How We Die by Sherwin Newland that I read many years ago. And Sherwin died uh, Sunday or Monday, I believe. But that was it's an amazing book, and everyone should read it who's going to die. Um, and also, uh, a little self-promotion, March 14th, next Friday, the Shinolos will be appearing with the, the great Danny Korchmar, uh, the Korchmar McDonald Band at Bridge Street Live. We'll be doing a third set with both bands on. I'm mm. not sure what we'll be doing. Probably some juggling in pantomime. Uh, and I'll be doing the guy in the box. Well, if you haven't been to a Shinola show, you absolutely <coughs> have to go. Danny Korchmar's many things, including for a long time, James Taylor's most prized sideman, lead guitarist kind of guy. So that should be a lot of fun. What have you got for us? Um, uh, in the line of uh, writing about place, I've, I've, I've always had an inexplicable interest in the country of Iran. I'm interested in the relationship between fundamentalism and cosmopolitanism. Anyway, so I happen to be reading this book called The Ministry of Guidance Invites You to Not Stay by this guy named Human Majd. He was on Jon Stewart uh, a while ago. And it's, it's sort of a travel book by, by somebody who's he's Iranian. He, he lived there for two years. He speaks Farsi, but he's an American. So it's sort of like reading um, something from an American 
traveler in a place, but he's also writing from the inside, and it's kind of an interesting. It's not he's not a brilliant writer, but I, it's a very interesting glimpse into the t- nuances of Iran, the kind of things that we don't normally know about. Uh, for my endorsement, first of all, yesterday you may have heard us do a show that had to do with being gay, being in or out of the closet. Um, the wonderful. Uh, actor Brian Murray, who's been in so many stellar productions uh, in, in on Broadway and elsewhere, was here with us yesterday, 76 years old, and talked to the fr- for the first time ever publicly uh, about being gay, which was quite something. Um, but uh, we had no idea that he had never <laughs> talked about this before, and he had no idea that he was going to start talking about it. So um, I do recommend the show that he's in. It's called The Song at Twilight. It's by Noel Coward. I went in there wondering, well, do I really need to see a 1966 Noel Coward play here in 2014? Uh, and it, 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 Mark Lamos, the director, really has found something interesting to do with it. Uh, it's uh, also, you just forget what a beautiful writer of dialogue Coward is. There's just this wonderful British elegance to, to the lines. Uh, and then um, something about the design, it, it, uh, one of the things that happens twice in the play, once near the beginning and once at the very end, is that sort of above the heads of the characters, there's a, a space that illuminates and two actual uh, beautiful young men are there uh, unclothed and embracing one another and it's sort of the 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 protagonist's recollection of the most beautiful love he's ever experienced, the love that he gave up and a love that he betrayed in many ways because he didn't want the world to know that he was a homosexual. Uh, and it's just the way that the production does this is is really remarkable. So I, I salute that uh, and uh, and I urge you to see, to see the play while it's still here. March 16th, I think, is when it closes. Uh, I've endorsed this like seven, as many times as Jim has endorsed um, – uh, True Detective, I have endorsed The Great Beauty. But I do want to tell you that it's at Bantam Cinemas. Con- consult your listings if you're out in Litchfield because it's not every single night. They're alternating with her and stuff like that. But The Great Beauty, which won the best uh, Oscar, the best uh, foreign language film Oscar and totally deserves it and really needs to be seen on a big screen. If you watch this in your home theater, you will not understand what it is everybody's talking about and you'll get mad. It's also playing right now at Real Artways. Again, can consult your listings. I'm sure they're juggling it with a couple of other titles, but go see it on a big screen, really. Otherwise, you'll have no idea. If you, and if you don't like foreign language films and subtitles, don't go and see it. Last thing to endorse, uh, our Tuesday show, which is uh, at New Britain Museum of Art, uh, New Britain Museum of American Art. We will be doing a show about typewriters uh, there and, and like everything about typewriters, including their really, really fascinating history and what it has to do with the history of labor and strikes and, and industrialization in Connecticut and stuff like that. But come visit us, too. It's open to the public. There's going to be gallery seating for you. So come to the New Britain Museum of Art slightly before 1 p.m. and we'll be there, just like President Obama. Khakis. White socks. White shirts. Sneakers from 1987. A blue baseball cap. A watch. On sale now at Bland's End because you are one of seven billion. <laughs>